Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. The past few years have seen governments around the world enact legislation designed to regulate the world's leading digital platforms. The most prominent piece of legislation, at least up until now, has been the EU's Digital Markets Act, which entered into force last November and became applicable at the beginning of May. The latest country to propose a new regulatory framework for the digital economy is the UK. Here to explain the draft UK legislation are three experts from Cleary Gottlieb's market-leading, award-winning antitrust practice. Jackie Holland, a former director of policy at the UK agency. Henry Mostyn, who's based in London, but spends a lot of his time in Brussels advising on the DMA. And Connor Optadeep Wilson, who is a leading Brussels-based expert on the DMA. So let's start with Jackie. Last month, the UK government published its long-awaited Digital Markets Competition and Consumers Bill which proposes establishing a pro-competition regime for digital markets, as well as making various amendments to UK competition law, merger control, and consumer protection law. The bill's been a long time coming, but before we get into the meat of what it says, how do we get here and why did it take so long? Thanks, Nick. Well, you're right that we've been waiting a long time for this. In many ways, the UK was a trailblazer in looking at issues re relating to digital markets, with the UK government instructing an expert panel led by Professor Jason Furman to produce a report on how to unlock digital competition. They were instructed back in 2018, with the report being finalised in March 2019, with a number of recommendations, one of which was for a new regulatory regime applicable to firms in the digital sector with so-called strategic market status. Um, around the same time in February 2019, Lord Tyree, who was then the chair of the CMA, also wrote a letter to the UK government setting out a, a shopping list of reforms that the CMA would like to see to the general competition and consumer law regimes. So this was all at the beginning of 2019. Um, the UK government then took all of this away and took a couple of years um, working up a consultation document on proposed changes to the UK regime, including a proposal for the new digital regulatory regime. That came out in 2021 with the consultation running until October 2021. Um, the government response um, to that consultation, so having read all the responses, was published in March um, 2022, so about a year ago, with an indication that the law would be introduced when parliamentary time allowed. Um, it tantalisingly appeared in the Queen's speech in 2022, um, but only with a commitment to publish a draft bill during that parliamentary session. We were then waiting and waiting and uh, nothing has come out. Um, but finally, we have now seen the bill introduced to Parliament um, in April 2023. And this is largely in the form that we were expecting a year ago. So it has taken four or five years to get to this point, but we have got there eventually. 
Um, in this time, a number of other jurisdictions around the world have developed their own proposals and in many ways have jumped ahead of the UK, um, most notably with the EC Digital Markets Act being formally adopted before our UK legislation had even made it to Parliament. So, Jackie, the UK has existing legislation that it's used. It's uh, it's opened a number of inquiries into uh, uh, the digital sector um, or companies engaging in conduct uh, in the digital space, and it's brought some individual cases under the existing legislation. Why did it think it needed new tools? The short answer is that the CMA and many other jurisdictions worldwide have concluded that there are sufficient concerns about the conduct of large digital players to justify a regulatory regime that aims to stop certain categories of conduct occurring in the first place, rather than relying on their enforcement powers to investigate past behaviour and the deterrent effect of penalties imposed for any infringements they find. We already have ex-ante sectoral regulation in a number of sectors in the UK, um, such as energy, water and telecoms. The CMA digital strategy in advance of the regulatory regime has involved making maximum use of its full toolkit of existing powers until the regulatory regime has been enacted. And so the CMA has been taking a number of steps the last few years. They haven't just been sitting and waiting for the new regime to come into force. So the digital markets unit, the unit within the CMA that focuses on digital companies and digital issues was established in shadow form in 2021 um, with the team focusing on cases in digital sectors. The CMA developed a digital strategy um, they have used their Competition Act powers to launch investigations into Amazon, Apple, Google and Meta. They have used their market study tool to complete market studies into several digital markets such as digital advertising, music streaming and mobile ecosystems. On the merger side, they've, up, they've updated their merger assessment guidelines um, in March 2021 to focus on the more dynamic assessment of the impact of mergers on future competition. And that has led to more aggressive merger enforcement in the digital space too, with the CMA prohibiting deals such as Facebook, Giphy, and more recently, Microsoft Activision. And also finally, they've used their consumer law powers with a number of cases focusing on digital platforms, use of online choice architecture, subscription traps and urgency claims, for example. So the CMA has been able to take some action under its existing powers and has indeed done so. But these proceedings take some time and focus on correcting past behavior. And so they have pushed for the digital regulatory regime to put um, ex ante rules into place um, that set the ground rules for future conduct. Thanks, Jackie. So let's turn to what those rules are going to look like and when we can expect them uh, to come into being. Henry, tell us at a fairly high level, and let's leave merger control, competition law and consumer law for later. Tell us what's being proposed in the digital space, who it's likely to apply to, and how it's intended to work in practice. Um, sure thing, Nick. So I'll, I'll try my best to give a high level. The Act is at 388 pages, but I'll, I'll try and do it in um, 3.8 minutes. 
Um, so at a basic level, uh, you can think of the process working in three steps. So first, there'll be a new unit at the CMA, um, the digital markets unit, that will designate firms as having so-called strategic market status. So firms will be designated following an investigation of up to nine months if they're deemed to have substantial and entrenched market power and a position of strategic significance in relation to a particular digital, digital activity. So the CMA has kind of fairly broad discretion about who it will investigate and try and designate as having SMS status. Now, we do have some hint of who we think the CMA will, will want to cover from their past reports uh, in the mobile ecosystems uh, study and the digital ads market study, and that's Google, Apple, and Facebook. Uh, and the recent Microsoft Activision decision uh, also suggests that the CMA views Microsoft as holding certain strategic advantages in a number of digital areas. So Microsoft may be coming into scope in the future too. Second, uh, the CMA will then design firm-specific conduct requirements that will apply individually to the designated SMS firms. Now, the CMA will have broad discretion to come up with these firm-specific rulebooks based only on three overarching objectives of fair trading, open choices, and trust and transparency. And the rules that the CMA will devise must fit within 13 conduct categories that are set out at clause 20 of the bill. But these categories are really incredibly broad. They include rules such as um, categories such as SMS firms not using data unfairly, or that they must trade reasonably and fairly, which are really so broad as to give the CMA almost unlimited power to devise the rules. The CMA will then publish this firm-specific rulebook at the same time it designates a firm as having SMS status. So if the bill was published by the autumn this year, which I think the government is hoping it might be, you may see firms designated and rules published sometime around the beginning of next year, which would be about the similar time that the Dig Digital Markets Act's rules come into force in March 2024. Um, investigations for deviations of the conduct, once, these rule, once the rulebook is in place, um, can uh, take up to six months and fines can, can go up to 10% of global turnover. Third, final point, the DMA will also have a new tool in its toolkit called pro-competitive interventions or PCIs. So if the DMU believes that SMS firms are engaging in some anti-competitive conduct that doesn't strictly fall within the four corners of the conduct requirements that it devised, it can still directly intervene to prevent, prevent that conduct via a, a PCI investigation. This does give rise to a, a strange quirk in the bill. So and I should say that a PCI investigation is limited by the need for the CMA to establish an adverse effect on competition. And if it can establish such an adverse effect, the CMA can then order any proportionate remedy that it deems fit. But this does give rise to a, a slightly strange quirk in the bill. Um, because rather than trying to impose a PCI uh, and show an adverse effect on competition, the CMA can simply just avoid that whole process by updating the conduct requirements um, uh, and, and banning the firm from engaging in that conduct. Uh, so overall, it's a system that's designed to give the CMA really very considerable power and discretion in the way that it regulates the behavior of digital platforms. Um, the proposals are therefore a bit more akin to the rules that we see in Germany under the Section 19A, um, reforms than the rigid do's and don'ts of the Digital Markets Act. Henry, thanks very much.
I'd like a follow-up question on something you touched on at the end, namely the discretion that the new uh, proposed legislation gives the CMA. If I understand well, the CMA will devise the regulatory rulebook itself and seems to have relatively few limits on what it can propose. Um, now, the UK government has trumpeted the greater flexibility of its regime, but does the discretion that the CMA will have uh, to write and then enforce rules raise concerns in your mind? And what kind of judicial oversight will there be over CMA enforcement? Yes, I think this is really the, the biggest concern with the bill as proposed. Um, first, uh, there are really very few limiting principles as to how the CMA can frame those conduct requirements. There's no, there's no obligation that those requirements are subject to uh, posing a risk to competition, proportionality, or absence of pro-competitive justification. All there are are those 13 requirements um, that are so vague as to almost provide no limitation. Um, second, uh, this concern is compounded by the proposal that all decisions of the CMA can only be appealed on judicial review principles. So in other words, there would not be a full review of the decision on points of fact on law on the merits. Uh, instead, appeals are based on the traditional judicial review grounds of irrationality, uh, procedural unfairness, or illegality. Uh, and we know from the experience in merger control that where CMA decisions can only be appealed on judicial review grounds, that it's very hard to overturn such decisions. And I do think the combination of these two factors is a concern. So the regulator is not just judge, jury, and executioner, because it also writes the rules it's this itself. It becomes legislator, investigator, judge, jury, and executioner, with then only very limited recourse to the courts if things go wrong. Thanks, Henry. I'd like to turn to Connor in Brussels. When the UK government announced the bill, it stated that the regime would be more flexible than the EU's digital regulation, the Digital Markets Act, explaining, and I quote, the EU approach is blunt and applies blanket rules on firms, which risks creating unnecessary burdens on business and characterizing the UK proposal as, and I quote, a key Brexit opportunity that will be more flexible, bespoke and targeted. How do you view the UK proposals? How do they compare with the EU's Digital Markets Act? Thank you, Nick. So I think one of the one of the pieces that's telling in the in the quote when the bill was being announced is this reference to unnecessary burdens on the businesses that have become subject to the law. And I think that's very welcome because it appears to be a recognition of the significant overhead the rules of this sort can create, both on the businesses that are directly subject to their strictures, but also on smaller market players that have been uh, active in, in ecosystems that may now be disrupted by these new rules. And this, however, is maybe more of a statement of intent than a guarantee of efficient uh, regulation, because a lot of the questions as to how efficient the UK uh, bill is liable to be in practice are going to depend a lot on how it's enforced. And I think there are a couple of different points and maybe three points to pick up on where there are some differences between how the bill is structured and, and how the DMA is structured. And these may well be uh, flashpoints in terms of how efficient the UK bill can be compared to the, to the DMA. The first of those areas relates to how companies fall in scope of the rules. The DMA 
uses a designation methodology to determine which companies and which services within those companies are subject to the DMH rules that is relatively inflexible. In essence, there are a couple of uh, quantitative thresholds around the number of end users of a service, around the number of business users of that service, and around some of the financials of the undertaking that operates that service, where if you tick these boxes, you very quickly end up within uh, the being subject to the law with only fairly narrow ways to escape the law's application. That can lead to a rover uh, cookie cutter approach where you get businesses of a vastly different size being subject to the same set of rules. The UK approach appears to be more flexible and more targeted in this respect because it gives more leeway into how the DMU will designate the companies that fall in scope and how they can specify which companies ought to be in scope of which particular rules. So certainly on, in terms of what companies will fall in scope of the rules, there appears to be a, a greater degree of flexibility built into how the rules are likely to work, although of course, we'll need to see how that's used in practice. In terms of the rules themselves, um, I think one of the things that the, the bill is very strong on is the notion that the rules ought to be tailored to meet specific types of conduct that ought to be addressed. The quote is maybe not completely fair to the DMA in suggesting that it's a one-size-fits-all approach because some of the rules there are already a little bit tailored. Some of them apply only to specific business models. Others apply to all business models, but only arise in specific circumstances. But again, this is an area where, depending on specifically how it is um, applied by the DMU in practice, there is at least scope for some of the rules being perhaps uh, better tailored to one business model rather than another. And maybe just a final point very quickly to raise is about enforcement prioritization. When we're thinking about how efficient a regulation can be, one of the key parameters in that is how the enforcer considers when intervention is proportionate to the harm that they are seeking to alleviate through that intervention. And in a sense, the proof will be in the pudding for both the DMA and for the DMU's enforcement activity here, because the DMA enforcement hasn't started yet. But the way that both authorities will choose which cases to pursue and how to pursue them may also have a very considerable impact on the efficiency of the rule. Thanks, Connor. One of the questions I'm most frequently asked is how the two systems, uh, the EU system and the UK system, are going to work together. Um, some even question whether the UK needed a system saying, after all, if a company complies with the Digital Markets Act, what's the, what's the rationale for having uh, a parallel system of UK regulation? Do you expect the CMA to duplicate the EU or pursue a slightly different course? Do you think there's likely to be convergence or divergence? So I think one, one thing that's fairly clear is that the UK bill is designed to make its own mark. And the, the reference to Brexit in, in the announcement is you know, perhaps a particularly obvious way of making this point explicit. So duplication of the two sets of rules across the two jurisdictions seems a fairly unlikely outcome. Now, at the same time, I think the focus on efficient enforcement that the bill is designed to, to characterize and, and to facilitate does imply that uh, both the European Commission and the DMU will need to be very mindful about the risk of fragmentation. It's incredibly inefficient for 
the gatekeepers under the DMA that, that may also fall in the scope of the DMU to face two authorities trying to resolve the same perceived problem in slightly different ways. Because those slightly different approaches to enforcement can result in very considerable engineering overhead or commercial changes to well-established and well-functioning ecosystems. And so it would be a, a very disappointing outcome and an outcome that would go against the goal of the law in promoting efficiency for essentially both authorities to come to the same issues in, from different directions. And so a degree of convergence, at least in how some of the overlapping areas of the two laws are are enforced, I think would be very welcome and would not be far removed from the way that we see the European Commission, the CMA um, slash DMU interacting around existing cases, be they merger cases, antitrust enforcement cases, the authorities do talk to each other, they do seek to resolve things in a coherent way where it's possible. I think the hope would be that we would see something similar here. Thanks, Connor. Let me turn to merger control. But the CMA leadership, as regular listeners to the podcast will know, has been critical of some of the European Commission's approval decisions over the past decade, has called for more muscular interventionist enforcement, and has blocked two big transactions in the past year alone, Facebook Giphy and Microsoft Activision Blizzard. Jackie, the new legislation contains a package of reforms concerning merger control. Can you briefly describe what they involve and what we should expect if the legislation is enacted? Thanks, Nick. Yes, I'll highlight a couple of areas to watch out for relating to the jurisdictional tests for merger control in the UK and a new reporting mechanism for firms with SMS or strategic market status. So starting with the jurisdictional test changes, Currently, we have in the UK two key jurisdiction tests for merger control, with the merger needing to meet a turnover test or a share of supply test. And we have changes um, to the turnover test as well as an alternative jurisdictional test coming in. So firstly, the bill proposes an increase in the turnover test threshold from UK turnover of 70 million of the target to 100 million. Um, the government says that this reflects inflation since the turnover test threshold was last reviewed. The second one is perhaps more controversial. The bill would introduce a new jurisdiction test designed primarily to capture so-called killer acquisitions. This threshold will apply if the acquiring party has a UK turnover of over £350 million and a share of supply of goods or services in the UK of at least 33%. The, there is no criteria there relating to the target, so these um, thresholds relate to the acquirer rather than the target. This will give the CMA jurisdiction to look at acquisitions where the target does not have any UK turnover and its activities do not overlap at all with those of the acquirer, provided, of course, that the acquirer is pretty large, so has a large UK turnover and a 33% share of supply. This doesn't mean that the CMA would call in all of these mergers for review, um, but it means the CMA would have the option to do so if it had competition concerns. 
So for example, in the past or currently today, if the CMA had concerns about a merger, but the target had a very low turnover or perhaps not any turnover yet at all because it had a pipeline product or it was a new digital business. And if the um, new business did not have activities that overlapped with the acquirer, the CMA would not have jurisdiction under our share of supply test that currently requires both businesses to have activities that overlap and they need to have a combined share of supply of 25% or more. So this new jurisdictional thresholds enables the CMA to look at large parties with a significant share in the UK, any acquisitions they've got. We would expect um, the CMA not to call them all in for review, but to be quite focused for ones where they perhaps have had complaints or they worried about a, a vertical issue or um, the possibility that the acquirer is buying a business to stop it growing and competing with their own activities. Um, the other proposal in the bill is to introduce a new um, uh, notification regime of sorts for firms designated as having strategic market status or SMS under the new digital regime. So SMS firms are going to have to report all of their transactions to the CMA where they're acquiring a stake of 15% or more, 1-5% or more in another firm and the holding is worth more than 25 million pounds and the transaction has a UK nexus. The procedure in the bill would involve the SMS firm sending a notification to the CMA and then having a waiting period of five working days before they can close such transactions without the CMA's consent. This is a big change for us in the UK as we currently have a voluntary notification regime for mergers with no mandatory suspension period. So normally businesses are free to close their transactions without waiting for feedback from the CMA. The bill proposal is obviously quite a short waiting period of five working days, um, but it'll be interesting to watch and see how that um, is, is met in Parliament and if there are any developments on that. Thanks, Jackie. So as in Brussels, it looks like we're uh, going to have what is effectively a new merger control system for the digital platforms that meet the applicable criteria, giving the CMA, in effect, carte blanche to investigate anyone that it has reason to think requires investigation. Is that a fair summary? I, th I think in, in some ways it is, yes, yeah, so that's what I was saying, in the sense that um, the jurisdictional threshold will be very flexible for the CMA in practice. So if it is an acquisition by a large company with a significant share of supply in, in the UK in relation to some goods or services, they would technically be able to call that merger in for review. But we've seen over the years that the CMA has got more focused in terms of which cases it calls in for investigation. And the proposals do not involve a change to our voluntary merger regime. Um, so we would expect the, the CMA to be quite selective in terms of which cases it pulls in for investigation and to focus on those that raise complex issues. Um, we currently have a procedure in the UK where we put in 
have an option of putting in a briefing paper on a transaction and um, checking with the CMA in effect whether they would like us to notify the merger or whether they are happy for us not to go ahead and notifying the merger. So I would see us making even more frequent use of this briefing paper in the future um, for large acquirers if they're making a significant acquisition in the UK that could be caught just to sort of test in advance whether it, the CMA is likely to be interested and want to call in the merger or whether they're happy not to receive um, a notification. Thank you, Jackie. A second question about merger control for Henry. The UK reforms were published the same week as the CMA issued its decision to prohibit the Microsoft Activision Blizzard merger. And in a speech uh, delivered the same day as the decision, uh, the CEO of the CMA, Sarah Cardell, linked the two developments, explaining that merger control and the new digital markets regime are complementary ways to ensure effective competition, supporting investment, innovation, and growth. Uh, the reaction from uh, the merging parties to that transaction was slightly different. They characterized it as a bad day for UK PLC and investment in the tech sector. Henry, what's your view on what these developments say about the future of the UK tech sector? Are they going to render it more competitive or chill confidence in the UK? The CMA clearly sees robust merger control as an important element of encouraging innovation in tech in the UK, including in digital markets. Uh, and I don't think the Activision Blizzard deal is a new development in this respect, um, where the CMA is following a long line of the Furman report, the Lear report uh, that Jackie mentioned, that identified under enforcement in mergers in digital markets as holding back innovation in tech. Uh, and likewise, the government also clearly sees the new regime as a tool to encourage growth and investment in technology. Um, Paul Scully, the minister that announced the bill, said we want to make sure the legislation is flexible, proportionate, and fair to both big and challenger companies. Uh, and in my view, there's no reason why thoughtfully enforced and proportionate regulation cannot encourage innovation and competition in digital markets, uh, particularly if the EU's Digital Markets Act on our doorstep is enforced overly rigidly without consideration of innovation and consumer benefit. I mean, when it comes to the, the future of tech in the UK, I mean, the biggest challenge in my view isn't gonna be about the CMA's enforcement of mergers or the new digital regime. It's about attracting talent and investment. I mean, a survey from last year by Reed found that 72% of tech companies in the UK struggled to hire the people they need in the last 12 months. So while the government has trumpeted the new regime as a Brexit opportunity, it also needs to overcome a Brexit problem, which is allowing overseas talent uh, and investment into the UK uh, to help the tech industry thrive. Thanks, Henry. The new bill would also bring in significant changes to UK consumer law. Question for Jackie, what do you see as being the most important changes? And do you see consumer law as being a key focus of CMA activity in the future? So in many ways, the proposed consumer law changes are the most radical of the proposed changes in the bill. Um, currently in the UK, the CMA has to go to court to prove an infringement of consumer law and has found this very frustrating. In practice, they've aimed to negotiate undertakings with businesses to avoid going to court. But the CMA has been concerned that their current powers do not have sufficient deterrent effects. 
Um, and so what we have in the proposed bill is a, a very big change to consumer law with the CMA having the ability for the first time to issue infringement decisions directly for breaches of consumer law. So they won't have to take firms to court to prove an infringement anymore. And in addition, they will be able to fine businesses up to 10% of worldwide turnover for consumer law. This is a massive increase. They do not have the power to fine businesses at all at the moment. And so they're then having their powers introduced and the fines are at the same level as breaches of competition law. The CMA has been a very active enforcer of consumer law, even under their existing powers um, for many years now, with live cases into the use of online urgency claims, telling us there's only certain items left or you need to make this purchase quickly. They've looked into greenwashing claims, social media endorsements, online reviews, etc. Um, most of those cases have tended to drag out over many years, and so I would expect um, that we'll see the CMA making quite aggressive use of the new consumer law powers when they come in and imposing some significant fines as a deterrent to other businesses from breaching consumer law. Um, the bill also introduces some specific obligations to protect consumers from fake online reviews and so-called subscription traps where consumers can unwittingly renew a contract without realising or sign up for an annual subscription with no way of getting out of that in advance. Um, they're very focused too on online choice architecture and have been doing some work looking at default settings, etc. So these are all hot topics in consumer law, and we can expect the CMA to make full use of the new powers and the new rules, um, you know, if and when they come into force. So, Jackie, do you see consumer law really emerging into a new standalone area of practice? And if you were beginning your career again, would you think about specialising in that area? Yes, I do. I think this is a real sort of big bang moment for consumer law. Um, these are really significant powers. And I think the in particular, the ability to impose such significant fines for breaches of consumer law will make this jump up um, the compliance agenda within businesses in the UK to avoid a very significant fine. Um, yes, I think for future lawyers um, around, it is an interesting one to get on top of and um, understand. And it's an interesting interaction with consumer behavior and some behavioral psychology in terms of online choice architecture and how it works. So it's certainly going to be a very interesting field going forward. Thanks, Jackie. And a similar kind of question for Connor and for Henry, uh, even though we're at the early point of uh, uh, digital regulation, I think we can already see it's becoming an area of specialization. Is that a view you share? And if you were younger lawyers than you are, would you specialize in that area or suggest someone else specializes in it? Connor. I think one of the one of the reasons is particularly exciting to, to work in this area at the moment is that it brings together quite a diverse areas of law and, and it brings quite a diverse area of expertise into the practice of that law. There's obviously a heavy competition law component, there's a consumer law aspect, um, there are IP aspects, there are interesting dispute questions that arise. So I don't know that I would set out at this stage to try and specialize in digital regulation, 
I think there are a lot of different streams that you can create expertise in and lean into digital aspects of those streams to end up coming to digital regulation, but with a background that enables you to be particularly impactful there. Yeah, um, first of all, I am still young. Um, uh, and second, uh, I would agree with Connor that I actually wouldn't try and specialize only in digital regulation at the outset because the, the new rules are still based on fundamental competition law principles like fairness, proportionality, legitimate expectation, uh, and justification. Uh, and there's no reason why you can't hone your skills and your advocacy when it comes to those concepts in cement uh, before upgrading to microchips on the cloud. Thanks, Henry. Just before my final uh, question, um, hearing you talk about um, advice for younger lawyers um, makes me wonder as a general matter, what advice would you give our younger listeners thinking about a career in competition law? Jackie. I think for me, I would just take as much experience in, a, in as many areas as you possibly can, throw yourself into as many areas, give a go at merger control, um, antitrust work, sexual regulation, whether it's digital or whether it's energy or water um, litigation, just give everything a go. And you find that some of the principles you learn from the different areas will be really useful when you're doing a later case um, down the lane, even if it's in a completely unrelated area. Henry. Uh, well, well, I have a little post-it note on my uh, computer screen whenever I'm stuck, which says, uh, what would Jackie do? Um, WWJD. Uh, and so um, I would advise to, to follow what Jackie just said. Uh, and so I, um, I agree with uh, Jackie's recommendation there. So apart from having Jackie Holland on speed dial, Connor, what advice would you give? Well, that's hard advice to beat, but I will actually plagiarize something you said to me when I joined this firm not so long ago, which is to read about issues very broadly in a range of different publications, because I think it gives you a different perspective on some of the commercial issues that we come across. It helps you see the different sides of the argument, and it also hones the way that you express your ideas by seeing how different people express them in different ways, and it helps you build your own style, both of thinking and of writing. That's great advice, Connor. Read widely, study the law, be as curious as you possibly can. Start early and finish late. All right. Last question for those familiar with the podcast will know. This is the same question that I typically ask at the end. Can you tell us something about yourself that is not widely known? Well, uh, I'm not sure there isn't anything that isn't widely known about me because uh, I'm very well known for my transparency. Um, but I would say that I, if I haven't already told you, that I was um, mascot for Tottenham Hotspur when I was eight years old uh, and Jürgen Kinsman rubbed me on the hair and said I'd go very far. Connor. Um, since exercises like this one invariably result in um, valiant, but usually not very successful attempts to pronounce my surname up to bake, I thought I would share its meaning. Um, which is widely known to folks who speak Flemish, but probably not very widely known beyond that. And so it refers, I'm reliably told, to the location of an old family farm, which was built next to a, a little stream in Flanders. And not very creatively, the family inherited the name of the farm and up to bake quite literally means on the stream. Football farming, Jackie, what's something about yourself that's not widely known? 
like like Henry, it's a bit difficult. I suspect some of you may know, but you may not know. I, I think many of my best ideas come to me when I'm on a walk. So I do quite a lot of walking. I like going for walks with dogs on my own anywhere in the countryside. And most of my best ideas or thinking comes on a walk. Jackie Holland, Henry Moston, Connor Optidick Wilson, thank you very much for joining today's podcast. It's been fascinating. I look forward to welcoming you to the next podcast soon. Goodbye.